The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So when I put my hand up, don't think of me as a pastor right now, offering a blessing or a benediction. Just When somebody puts their hand up, what are they doing? Giving an air high five, maybe, as Emerson just did with me, or asking a question, right? When we have a question, we put our hands up. We have lots of questions in our lives, and questions are actually really, really important for us to ask, right? We're always encouraged to ask questions. I think one of the reasons why Google exists is so that we can have our questions answered right now. It's an immediate thing, and it's so addicting. But I want you to think for yourself for a moment right now. What questions have I had this week? What questions have I had this week? What were they? Were they cooking questions? COVID questions? Math questions? And where did you go to get answers to these? Maybe it was Google, or your school teacher, or your parents, or your spouse, or maybe even your kids. But what about the questions that nobody can seem to answer? The deep questions that many of us wrestle with. Sometimes we call these life's big questions, right? What am I doing here? What is our world about? How can we make it right? Or at least be a part of making it right. Or then the personal deep questions of why me? Why this? Why now? Where do we look for answers to these questions, these deep questions? Google probably won't be of that much help here. One author I was reading this week put it like this. These are the big questions that everyone eventually must ask. The what am I here for? Why am I here? What's our world about? Those are the questions that everyone must ask. So for that reason, because we all find ourselves at some point asking these deep questions, I'm excited to introduce you to Nathaniel. I think you're going to like him. He is the guy who has his hand up in the classroom. He always had questions. He was looking for good mentors, too. He was searching, and he was a little bit edgy. Most, most importantly, though, he was open to exploring. He was looking for a rabbi, for the Messiah, and he had his ear to the ground, and he wasn't always looking in the places where everyone expected. There is some evidence to suggest that Nathaniel, before following Jesus, was actually a follower of John the Baptist the radical teacher in his own right. So Nathaniel has his hand up. He's asking the questions. Most likely he's asking those deep questions. Will we follow him to Jesus? Will we answer the invitation of Philip? Come and see. Let's let's do that. Let's look at Nathaniel meeting and following Jesus of Nazareth. And we'll see Nathaniel the skeptic, we'll see Nathaniel the convert, and Jesus the latter. 
First, Nathaniel the skeptic. I think it's important for us, first of all, to remember that Nathaniel is a Jew. So he knows the, the traditions. He knows the scriptures. He knows the history of his people. And he still has questions that he's looking for answers to. I think, first, first of all, right off the bat, this is encouraging for us who sometimes feel bad for having questions about our, our faith. Wondering if there's space for these questions. Of course there is. Nathaniel was introduced to Jesus by his friend Philip. Philip had recently become a follower of Jesus himself and was clearly excited about the fact that he believed that he had found, and I quote, the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Nathanael comes to Jesus because Philip believes that Jesus is the one. Philip is convinced. Nathaniel, not so much, right? So like a, a little excited boy tugging on his mummy's arm, Nath Philip grabs Nathaniel and says to him, Come and see. Come and see. Let me show you Jesus. Again, Philip is convinced, but Nathaniel's not. Right? He sees the seeming inconsistencies in what Philip has just said. The one Moses wrote about, the ones the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth? How can anything good come out of that place? Now to us, this doesn't really hit home. Some of us, like me, have grown up knowing that, the, that Jesus comes from Nazareth and not really blinking an eye at it because... What's the big deal? What's wrong with that? Of course he's from Nazareth. But that's because most of us aren't experts in Jewish geography and aren't up to speed with some of the thoughts and rivalries that come from that time. Why does Nathaniel sneer at Nazareth? Because nobody comes from there. Nazareth is the boondocks. It's the sticks. It's the place where the crazies live. It's, it's not the place where the cultural elites or the well-known rabbis, and certainly not messiahs, they never come from Nazareth. No way. Nazareth? Now, to be fair, this is somewhat of an honest skepticism in Nathaniel. I mean, he's from a certain culture, and he, he knows it's just a common knowledge that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But this shows us, I think, that Nathaniel has pre-constructed ideas of Jesus, right? Like a contractor who eyes the integrity of a two-by-four, right? Nathaniel thinks that he can see clearly that Jesus is already a little crooked. And this is dangerous. Dangerous because Nathaniel was actually wrong. He was wrong maybe about Nazareth, right? Something good could come out of Nazareth. Jesus. But more importantly, Nathaniel was wrong about God, or what God would or wouldn't do. Messiah? Nazareth? Yes. Some of us may experience the same skepticism at the person of Jesus and how he acts in our world today. For, for example, some of us may think, you know, wherever you're at in your life, how can God let this happen to me? I trust him. I follow his will for my life as best as I can. I try to love God as God commands me, and this is how he treats me? This is what he gives to me? Seriously? Or, I can't believe in a God who would send good people to hell. Good people. 
A loving God would never send good people to hell. Both of these are examples of Nathanieling Jesus. Coming with skepticism and questions, yes, but also arriving at conclusions. How many, how many of us join Nathaniel? The Messiah can't be from Nazareth. But like a know-it-all three-year-old, when we strap on Nathaniel's sandals, we can miss something important. Something that Nathaniel gets a good dose of in the coming verses. But now, Nathaniel, one of his better traits is that he does have an open mind. It seems like he's jumping to conclusions about Jesus, but he still has the awareness to listen to his friend Philip and to respond to his invitation to come and see Jesus. This is an important point because in our skepticism and questions, having an open mind is crucial. Even if we do arrive at conclusions, we must keep an open mind because like Nathaniel, it actually could lead to our questions being answered. So we see Nathaniel is a skeptic. He's skeptical about Jesus of Nazareth and the claims that his friend Philip makes about him. But Nathaniel's not just a skeptic, he's also a convert. See, we're told that when Jesus saw Nathanael. He says to him, Truly an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Now I think many of us see this, but I'll just say it anyways. This is a compliment. Right? Jesus is patting Nathanael on the back. He's calling Nathanael an honest, transparent person. One who calls a spade a spade. Right? A straight shooter, some of us would say. One commentator I read this week put it like this. Nathaniel may have been blunt in his criticism of Nazareth, but he was an Israelite without duplicitous motives, who was willing to examine for himself the claims made about Jesus. Nathaniel was, was a straight shooter. With ki Jesus' kind words, Nathaniel's taken aback. How could Jesus know him? I mean, they hadn't met, had they? I think this is an opportunity for us to put ourselves in the shoes of Nathaniel and just think for a second what it would have been like to be met with this compliment from Jesus. Imagine someone that you've never met before offers you a compliment that strikes a chord, right? Something that has been said to you before by people something that you actually value in yourself. Maybe it's something you see as your greatest character trait. This person who you've never met names this? That would take me for a loop. I don't know about you. And how does Jesus know this about Nathaniel? Right? Nathaniel's answer, or Jesus, sorry, Jesus' answer to this question, how do you know me, changed his life. Jesus says to him, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, all the Bible people I read this week about the spying fig tree episode, they all say the same thing. They all say, we have no idea what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree or why it was significant. 
nobody knows. We're not told anywhere in the scriptures. We're not given any clues in the text. All we know is that Jesus says to Nathaniel, answering Nathaniel's question, how do you know me? He says, I saw you under the fig tree. What we do know is that it really mattered to Nathaniel, whatever it was. It was something so significant that it was absolutely astounding to Nathaniel that Jesus could know this about him. And right away after this, he jumps on board, confesses Jesus as a rabbi, confesses Jesus as son of God, and confesses Jesus as king of Israel. Do you, do you see that? What a bold confession from a man who was 45 seconds ago a skeptic. There's no middle ground for Nathaniel, is there? And I love that about him as I've gotten to know Nathaniel this week. He, it's amazing how quickly he jumps on board with Jesus. He does a complete 180, right? This skeptical eye-rolling about Jesus from Nazareth, how can this be, turns into this bold prophecy that John uses in his gospel to actually for, foresee who Jesus is. Isn't that striking? Now, actually, it's kind of interesting that uh, many Bible commentators say that Jesus' response to Nathaniel's confession is actually a little critical. Think for yourself, well, hold on a second. Nathaniel comes on board. He confesses Jesus as the, a rabbi, the son of God, and, and, and the king of Israel. How can Jesus be critical of that? And what Jesus is, what commentators say that Jesus is saying in verse 50, is he says to him, seriously, Nathaniel, think about it. I show you just one supernatural thing, and you're on board. I tell you that I saw you under the fig tree, and that's it? That's enough? I'm afraid it's not that easy. See, Nathaniel is trying to get the Messiah without getting to know Jesus. Right? He loves the ideas and the benefits of they have found the one, the one who will answer the questions, the deepest questions, the questions of who will overthrow the Roman powers, who will take the seat as king of Israel. And Jesus says to him, not so quickly. No, 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 no. Don't let yourself jump to conclusions like this. Because I'm not here to do what you think I'm here for. Jesus is basically telling Nathaniel that without a relationship with him, he's still going to be looking for answers in the wrong place. And so Jesus, in this next story, tells Nathaniel what he's really doing. Jesus tells Nathaniel in this story of, of Genesis 28 with, Jacob, or with the ladder and the, son, the angels ascending and descending on the Son of God, he's telling Nathaniel what he's really here for. He's here to rebuild the broken relationship between God and us. Jesus says to Nathaniel, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. Then he added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God, Son of Man. Jesus 
is looking back here at a story that Nathaniel would have known. A story found in Genesis 28 that tells us about Jacob, later renamed Israel. When, when he was on the run from his family, Jacob has just stolen his brother's birthright and blessing, right? Esau's birthright and blessing. And he comes to a place exhausted from a day on the run, and he lays down, and he falls asleep and has a dream. And in that dream, he sees heaven ripped open and a ladder with angels ascending and descending on it. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever angels are present, it's a sign of God's presence, God's glory in that place. And what this dream is basically saying is that it's a visible reminder that God's presence is with Jacob. But the tension of that dream is this. How can God's presence be with Jacob? I mean, Jacob's a liar. He's a deceitful person. He has just stolen what's not his from his brother. He's not worthy of the presence of God coming into his life. This tension we can see through the rest of the Old Testament with the nation of Israel as they constantly break the promises of God, and yet God gives them chance after chance after chance. How can God's glory, God's presence, dwell with Israel? And that's the answer that Jesus is giving Nathaniel here. I love how New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it. He says that Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, don't think that you will see one or two remarkable acts of insight. What you will see from now on is the reality that Jacob's ladder, even the temple itself, is pointing. Jesus says to Nathaniel, if you follow me, you'll see what it looks like to, when heaven and earth are opened to each other because I am the presence of God. I am all the answers that you're looking for. A relationship with me is the answer. I've come to rebuild the broken relationship between God and you and us. But that's great for Nathaniel, right? He got to live with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to be in the presence of the glory of God. But what about us? Remember, this story is just a signpost, right? It points actually beyond Nathaniel and Jesus' conversation, all the way to the cross. Because the Christian teaching is that when Jesus went to the cross, the staircase, the ladder, angels ascending and descending, the presence of God was cut off from Jesus. No angels were ascending and descending. God's presence was not with him. We know this because he called out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Well, just look at the cross and hit the pause button for a second. Ask the question, what, why, or how? Why was that happening? What had Jesus done to deserve being cut off from God's presence? Was Jesus deserving of that? No way. He lived a perfect life. Then why? Why on the cross did Jesus lose the presence of God? See, on the cross, Jesus got the life without God so that we could have life with God. 
He was putting, Jesus was putting himself into our lives, into our misery, into our mortality, so that we could be brought into his life, his joy, and his immortality. Jesus resolves the tension of Jacob's dream by going to the cross, by taking our place and dying. But this means for us that we can all join Nathaniel. Our lives can be changed by a relationship with him. See, because Jesus comes to rebuild the broken relationship between God and us. Now, how does that answer our deep questions? A few things quickly before we end. See, this means because of the, the life of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus, because of the resurrection of Jesus that took place three days later, we know that a relationship with Jesus gives us hope. Hope that can face anything in our lives because our future has actually been secured. In his life, death, and resurrection, our future is so secure. And this is, goes, points back to the baptism of Jesus, right? But this gives us hope, right? Jesus has sunk the buzzer beater. The game's over. It's done. He has won. A relationship with Jesus gives us a satisfaction in our life that's not based on our current circumstances, but instead rooted in his saving grace. A relationship with Jesus gives us an identity that doesn't crush us or exclude others, right? It doesn't crush us because in Jesus, our identity, who we are, is not based on our personal performance, but on grace. This sets us free from living and dying based on every single day of how we think we've performed or how good we think we are, or how loved we think we are by other people in our lives. The relationship, a relationship with Jesus gives us an identity that doesn't crush us. A relationship with Jesus also gives us a meaning in life that suffering can't take away from us. Right? We, this meaning in life can't be taken away through suffering because we know that Jesus has blown a hole in death itself. There's a hole in the tomb. And we're aimed to go straight through it and out the other side and to be united with God forever. A relationship with Jesus begins to answer the deep questions that we all wrestle with. I'll conclude with these powerful words by C.S. Lewis. He put it so well. He says, I believe in Christianity is I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything. Not because I see it, but because by it I see everything. See, skeptics, we can come and see. Quick converts, we can come and see that everything, our questions and our searching, is answered in a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for examples like Nathaniel where we can find ourselves and where we can see that, um, that your gospel applies to us, helps us. Father, thank you for um, answering the tension in our world by sending to us Jesus from Nazareth, the one who would take our misery, our mortality, the brokenness in our lives, and nail it to the cross to take it upon himself so that we could be brought to life and joy and immortality. We thank you for this, and we pray that you would give us your spirit that would uh, continue to be with us and to stir us up and draw us towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.